You are listening to a sermon preached at Still Bay Baptist Church in Still Bay, South Africa. For more information, please visit our website stillbaybaptist.co.za. May you be blessed in listening to God's Word today. Like I've said a couple of times now, we're in a, in a December series on Seeking Shalom. Finding God's promised peace. This is something that I've really been wrestling with for the last while. Um, what exactly is the peace that God gives? Now, um, one thing that we as Baptists stand on is that the Bible is true. The Bible is not kind of true or sometimes true or almost true. We believe the Bible is absolutely true. And so if God in His Word says that He gives us peace... It must mean something. It must mean something that's available to everyone. Um, Shalom is one of those beautiful Hebrew words that can't really be translated into one English word. Um, There are just too many facets to it. Um, That passage in Jeremiah 29 that says, I know the plans I have for you, plan to prosper you. Now that's a problem. Because we have a wrong connection with prosper. We hear prosper and we think money. Did you know that it's the word shalom? I know the plans I have for you. Plans to shalom you. To give you peace. Well-being. A general state of well-being. I like this creative definition of shalom. Shalom is life as a marvelous melody in which every note of existence resonates, creating a symphony of wholeness and harmony. Shalom starts when we present ourselves as instruments to the Lord, the composer and performer of this life melody. When life is just as God intends. So in December, we're going to pursue peace. We're going to think on peace. Um, Because, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe you'll disagree with me, it just seems that people are losing their peace. People are becoming more frustrated, more angry, and it it plays out in different ways. More depressed, more anxious, more angry with your neighbor. Um, Now, at the Strandings at Allianz, where we pitched up the tent, I sent a message to Henry. Henry is the guy who looks after the two, three campsites. And, And I sent him, and I said, oh, how's it going? And he said, every year the people are just more difficult. Every year they're satisfied with nothing. Everything is a problem. And it just seems like that's, that's the world we're in. It's like a lack of peace, a lack of this melody playing through our lives. But it's also very fitting this time of the year to think of peace because if you read in Luke 2 at the birth of Jesus, it said, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I think what makes the understanding of peace difficult is that we know that we are heading one day to perfect peace. So we're going to get to eternity living with God where there is perfect peace. So that's the one extreme on the one side. The other extreme is where there's an absolute total lack of peace where you don't experience that at all. 
and life is somewhere in the middle. Um, we, we want that peace. When you read Revelation 21 and 22, read about this, 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 this life where there will be no more troubles, no more hurt, no more crying, no more any of those things. Um, but that's eternal life. That's eternal life. And, and I hope that is your goal. Because the Bible is clear that we just have two, two possible destinations. We have the destination of eternal peace or the destination of eternal turmoil. Um, now, that said, that full peace is only one day and the gospel is about what we will ultimately get. It doesn't mean it doesn't have an effect on today. Um, I spoke to one of my friends this week and we were speaking about these things about the gospel. And, and he said, the life now is the least important part of the gospel. Would you agree with that? The biggest promises of the gospel is what's going to happen when Jesus returns. That is why we have the gospel. We don't pick Jesus because I'm going to get a good job. Or I don't pick Jesus because he will make my life a little bit better. I want to follow Jesus because there's an end coming where I want to live with Him for eternity. So this world is the least important part. But the least important isn't the unimportant part. Um, when those angels sang this, that they say, Glory to God in the highest and in eternity peace. He said on earth. The same earth that we are living on now, where Hamas is attacking Israel and Russia is attacking Ukraine and your neighbor is attacking you and family turmoil. That's the same earth he's talking about, they're talking about. And they say, peace on this earth. So what does he mean? What does God mean when he says we can have peace on this earth? And this is where we need to put on our, our Sherlock Holmes hats and pick up our magnifying glasses and start our investigation. This passage already gives us a clue about where this peace is found. And it says, on earth peace to everyone among those with whom he is well pleased. And here we, we hit one of those nominal Christian mantras. You know what a nominal Christian is? It's someone who's Christian in name but not in spirit. They attach Christianity to them as a, as a label, but they've never been changed. And they have these things that they believe, these truth statements. Now, you're not going to find it in the Bible, these truth statements. Where are you going to find it? You're going to find it in Christian songs, and you're going to find it in Facebook posts. And one of these mantras of the, of the nominal Christians is that God is pleased with you. God is pleased with you. So I put that into Google and I hit so many beautiful pictures. God is pleased with you. Um, you are God's beloved. God is so pleased with you. God is so pleased with you, even when you don't feel it. Do you know that God is pleased with you? Now this one to me is very fascinating. Because he said, God is really pleased with you and he gives a Bible passage. So I guess it's true then. Because there's a Bible passage. So what do you do in that instance? You go read the Bible passage. That Bible passage was Jesus' baptism when the Father said to the Son 
in you I am well pleased. God is pleased with you because he said it to Jesus. So the problem is, and we'll see that the fact that God is pleased with you is not an outright lie. We're going to talk about a life where God is pleased with you. But it's not something you can blast on the internet for everyone to read and think it's true of them. It is simply not true of every person who reads this. What does the Bible say? Um, God looks at this world and what does He see? His enemies. Genesis 6 verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, but God loves everyone unconditionally, and so he just ignored it. So I think some people typics this verse out and wrote their own in. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The, the nominal Christian mantra is, oh, you just be who you are. God loves you. you he's so pleased with you. The Bible's message is God looks at this broken world and it grieves him. It gives him pain. And so on our journey to peace, the first hurdle we're going to have to overcome is how our sinfulness displeases God. Far worse, Romans 5 verse 8 says, it makes us enemies of God. Now that is a shocking, sobering thought. That when God looks at this world, he sees his enemies. Now, does that mean he just leaves it there? No. He wants to change his enemies into friends. That's, that's the era of grace that we're in at the moment. That's why he came the first time to say, I know you're my enemies, but I'm giving you a chance. I'm giving you a chance for this to change so that you're no longer my enemies. Um, but the time is coming when that age of grace is going to end. And Christ will return victorious to defeat his enemies. Um, we can't change who God is. The only thing I can change is my relationship to him, friend or an enemy. We can't change what's going to happen when Christ returns. The only thing I'm going to change is whether I'll be standing in front of him or behind him. Does that make sense? Who's going to be standing in front of Jesus when he returns? His enemies. Who's going to stand behind him? His people, as part of this mighty procession coming. So, um, our first step in this journey of peace is peace with God. Now, you can open your Bible to Romans 5. We're going to read from verse 1 to 5. A beautiful passage, not only telling you about peace, but also telling you what is available in this peace. That's what we want to find out this December. If I'm now at peace with God, what do I get? What can I experience? What is available to me in this? So Romans 5 from verse 1 to 5. And it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So that first verse there says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we make peace with God? We cannot. We cannot make peace with God because we are guilty before Him. Um, now, some people think, but I'm just going to pay my guilt. If I'm guilty before God, I'm just going to come and pay my guilt. And then I'm sure, I'm sure if I do good things for three months, that should be good enough. I'm sure God will be happy with that. Then we're going to be in His good books. There's a couple of problems with that. The first one is that your debt is so big, you can't even imagine paying the interest on your debt. That parable that Jesus tells about the, the guy that was forgiven by the king and then who didn't want to forgive one of his fellow slaves, if you go put the money into today's money that he owned that king, it was billions of rands he owed the king. It was just no chance. He said, I'll work the rest of my life. Sure, if you're able to live for 4,000 years, maybe we can get a dent into this. So the first problem is that your guilt is so big, you can't do anything about it. The second problem is that you are not capable of stopping to do bad things to start paying off your guilt. It would be someone like someone who comes into your house and he robs something from you and he feels very bad about it and the next day he comes and he says, oh, I'm so sorry about it. I'm so sorry that I stole your stuff. In the meantime, he puts more things in his pockets from your house. That's why we, we cannot make peace with God. We cannot pay our guilt. Um, only one person could do it. Our Lord Jesus Christ. What happened on the cross was the great exchange. He came in perfection and He bought eternity. We came in imperfection and He said, let's swap. I'll give you eternity. You give me your sins to be punished. That's the great exchange. That's the only way we can have peace with God. Um, and so how, how do I make that true of me? This passage says we get it. We are justified by faith. Now again, Christian mantras, nominal Christian mantra says faith is just something you picked. You put up your hand somewhere. Uh, someone once asked a question, and it's a very telling question. Not even the answer, the question. The questions are, what are the things I need to believe before I can be saved? Now, this, it's, the question isn't wrong. That there are things that you need to believe but in asking it in that way, it almost seems like you want to say, okay, I need to believe this and this and this and this and this. Okay, cool. I believe it, I believe it, I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. Cool. Now I'm a child of God. The question isn't just what do I need to believe. The question is also how do I believe? How do I need to believe? Um, so the what questions are relatively simple. I need to believe that God is the creator of the universe, that He set the rules He's in charge. He's the judge. He gets to judge us because He created us. The second rule, the thing I have to believe is that as a sinner, I have no right to come to God. I have no right to spend eternity with Him. The third thing I must believe is that the only way possible was Jesus Christ on the cross was the only one who could pay this price for me. The next thing that I need to believe is that I can need to believe. I need to come in faith and not through works, not through what I do, accept it. And then I need to believe that He is now my God and my Father. That's the what. The how is deny yourself, take up your cross, 
and follow Him. It's not just about mental things that I've decided in my mind. It's denying myself, taking up my cross, and following Him. Um, if that is true of you, that you have been justified by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ, then the good news is that you have peace with God. You today do not have to think that God has angry thoughts towards you as an enemy. You become His friend. If you, this is not true of you, the good news is that it can be true of you. This is the age of grace where God says, Come. I loved long ago in a church, um, the guy said, We have two pictures of Jesus. His first coming was the picture of Jesus on the cross. The second coming was the picture of Jesus as a warrior with a sword in his hand. And he said, It is so telling that at the moment, Jesus' call is, Come. Come. Don't miss out. Don't misunderstand what this good news is all about. But the day is going to come when he closes his hand and he said, you did not take your chances. You are rightfully going to be punished because you did not take your chances. And so the good news is that we are still here. You can still come. And if you want to speak to me more about that, please come talk to me afterwards. If this is not true of you. So now he says, this is what I, now I have peace with God. And then he carries on speaking about what impact this have on my life on earth. So he's talking about how this peace plays out on earth. The first one he says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace, into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Um, is it future tense? Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, in which we will stand. No, it's now. There's grace of God available now. And so the first thing that we have as peace with God is access to the grace of God. Um, okay, now, this, this you must get your head around. The, the first best thing about becoming a child of God is that I'm no longer an enemy of God. But is that really enough? Imagine I come to you and I ask, how's it going between you and your wife? And you say, well, we're not enemies. And you go, isn't there more? We are not enemies. That's a good start, but there needs to be a bit more to make it a good relationship. And that's what this passage is about. He says, now that you are no longer enemies of God, He invites you into the grace of relationship with Him. Um, what is grace? Anyone give def definition of grace? A good Baptist definition of grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Yes. God's unmerited favor. Yeah. So it's all the goodness that God has available for me to experience not apart from Him, but in Him. In my relationship with Him. In living in Him, I experience all this goodness. But there's more to it than just that. This passage in 2 Corinthians is very telling. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Grace is the power of God that enables you to live your life like it's planned for you to be lived. I start as an enemy of God. I'm forgiven, I come as a friend, and God says, now I will enable you to live 
with the power that you need to live this life. Why are so many people so frustrated at the moment? Because they felt they've lost power. They've lost control of their lives. Why were people so angry during COVID? Because the government put rules in place that restricted my power over my own life. And people don't like it because we believe the future of my life is in my hands. And God says, no, I will give you what you need for your life. Um, now, success in the world's terms is this idea that I am better and richer and greater than the people around me. That's success. Success in God's terms is that I fulfill the calling He has for my life. And it has very little to do with the people around me, other than the fact that I love them and serve them. God's grace enables you to do that. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing we experience from this verse is hope for the future. It says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Um, if I've been made new by God, I'm a friend of His, He gives me all His grace, I can look at the future with hope. And why is it the future of the glory of God? Because it's thinking of that picture of the glorious things that will happen when He comes back. When He comes back as a king, when I'm accepted into His kingdom, when my tears are dried off. And so every day, we look up at that day and say, oh, what a day it's going to be. Okay, just think how wonderful it's going to be when I, when I walk in there. Now, while I was preparing this, my phone beeped and there was a, a message that Clifton put on one of the groups. It was a photo of the, the three comrades runners that between them won about, I don't know, 300 comrades. Um, not really. Um, but, and that made me think, imagine you are running the comrades and you're getting towards the end and you can already imagine what's waiting for you there. You're going to run into this big stadium Somewhere someone gives you a rose, if I remember correctly. Or do they give it to the ladies? I don't know. Don't know. They give you a letter from the one maid to the other. Ah, that's the one. You, and, you, and everyone is going to cheer you. And you're going to run to that finish line. And they're going to accept you. And they're going to put that towel around you. And so it's looking to the glory of that future moment. That's what God gives us. The change He makes in us is that we are not scared of the future. We are not fearful of the future. We hope for the future. We long for the future. But that, um, that comrades thing is also very telling, that comrades metaphor. Because just because Bruce Fordyce is thinking of what's happening in seven kilometers, does it make his steps easier at the moment? No. It's still hard slogging. I remember one year, because when we were young, everyone watched comrades all day long on TV. Do you remember that? You woke up, you put the TV on, you sat there the whole day. I remember one year, the guy that was running in front, he got to one of the last uphills and he started running zigzag. Can anyone remember that? Because I googled it and I couldn't find it anyway. He started zigzagging up there and I think, what's going on? Short way is straight, man. He just couldn't do it anymore. He couldn't go at an angle like this. So he started zigzagging up there and he still won. And so that's another thing that this passage tells us about what we have the peace of God does not remove the struggles of this world. We're going to sing a song after this sermon, a very well-known song that says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, 
when sorrows like sea billows roll. And you go, your lines have nothing to do with each other. Now you're singing of peace attendeth my way, and now you're singing of sorrows. Because they coexist. This world will have struggles. And that's the next thing that he promises us. He doesn't promise the removal of struggles, but he promises the ability to rejoice and grow in suffering. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Do we rejoice for our sufferings? That'll be a bit strange, but I think you can actually get there. But more importantly is to rejoice in your sufferings. Because it's not the sufferings that's the good part. It's what God achieves through the sufferings. And the picture here is that suffering produces endurance. Now that's an easy one. If I'm able to stand strong in suffering, I'm able to stand strong in more severe suffering. And I'm able to stand longer. And I'm able to persevere and endure in suffering. That one is easy. How does endurance produces character because he's not talking about humanly character he's talking about godly character that if I live this life and I persevere and I persevere and I realize how on earth am I able to keep on going I look in me and I say God changed me God gave me new character that's the great thing so the perseverance teaches me that God has given me character and why does character give hope because if God changed me, He's going to come back for me. If I am His child, and He did all of this for me, He's not going to leave me here. He's coming back for me one day. And I look at the future again. Okay. Now, um, the last one then is, what does it produce? Love in us through the Holy Spirit in us. Verse 5 says, access to the grace of God. Um, sorry, I didn't put the verse there. But the verse says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. One of the great things of having to deal with this life is that Jesus didn't say, goodbye, see you at the end, do it, you'll be strong. But that He stays with us through the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit comes the fruit of the Spirit, which is predominantly love and everything else in that list. And so that is the peace that is available to us. That in a world that's broken and hateful, I can love. In a world that chooses to make my life difficult, I can turn around and say, I'm going to love you. And we've said this a couple of times in our church. How on earth do I get it right? That if you treat me badly, that I just return good. You give me evil, I return good. You give me evil, I return good. How on earth is that even possible? It's only possible if I stop focusing on you and I don't feed on you. I feed on God because God gives me love. I can give you love irrespective of how you treat me. If God shows me patience, I can show you patience irrespective of how you treat me. If God gives me kindness, I can give you kindness irrespective of how you treat me. But if I'm going to want to feed off you, this is going to be hard. But the Holy Spirit is in me, and it enables me to do it. So let's quickly look at this list. Access to the grace of God, hope for the future, the ability to rejoice and grow in suffering, love in us through the Holy Spirit in us. Now, 
the real question is, why is this not true of all people who call themselves Christians? If this is what's available, why don't we see it more? Instead of access to the grace of God, we see people doing things on their own, feeling weak and defeated, not fulfilling their purpose. Instead of hope for the future, we have people fearful for the future and angrier for the future. Instead of the ability to rejoice and grow in suffering, we see Christians falling flat on their face in suffering and, and dying in the midst of suffering. Instead of um, love in us through us, we see anger and hatred and fighting. Why, if God says this is available, is it not available in us? And like I said, this has been my journey. If God says it's available, why don't we have it? We call ourselves the church of God. We call ourselves, I'm not going to ask you to put up your hand. But if there's anyone here that says, man, I flourish and all of that. I know there will be some, but there won't be many. Why is it that this is so lacking in our world? And I think there's a couple of reasons. I'm going to give you one. The one reason, and this is a, a bit comforting, is that this is a journey. This isn't a switch that happens when you get saved. You grow in the grace of God. You grow in your ability to have hope for the future. You grow in your ability to rejoice in suffering. So don't be too hard on yourself as long as you are growing. But you know what? I think the second reason why it doesn't happen is, let's go back to that one, and it says, um, the verse in, in Luke says, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's the problem. Does all Christians live a life that please God? What do you think? I don't see any heads moving in any direction. Okay. Does all Christians live a life that please God? Now this is a difficult question. Because when God looks at you, He looks at you through Jesus and He accepts you. So we mustn't throw that part out. But when he looks at your life on earth, is he pleased with you? Not necessarily. And we know it from all the verses, for instance, Colossians that we've been doing, where he says, I'm encouraging you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, because you guys aren't always. And the reason why that is not true of everyone is because we don't live lives to please God. You are not going to experience the benefits of the peace of God if you don't walk in that way. So, the promise said, it's so beautiful there. It says, we have access to the grace of God. Now, the literal Hebrew says, we have the ability to come and speak to Him about it. We have been given the ability to come into His presence and receive from Him. But we still have to come. And this is, and like I said, we want peace. You are not going to have peace if you live to please yourself and not God. And so on this journey of peace, which we're carrying on next week with peace with other people, ask yourself, am I living a life that pleases God? If I look at the things I'm doing, the things I'm believing, the things I'm saying, the things I'm thinking, is that in line with what God says? 
or somewhere along the line I've convinced myself I don't have to listen to that. That does not apply to me. Peace is available. Um, how do you start getting back? Start having access to God. Start spending time with Him. Entering the throne room of God. And then ask God for one thing that I need to be obedient to. God, show me one thing where I'm not where I, need, where I should be. Help me with this one thing. Then you take it step by step by step to get into this life that pleases God with all the benefits of what it means to have peace with God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the, the good things that you are doing. Lord, we rejoice with you for the testimony of Justin and Emma and how you are guiding and leading them. We rejoice for the good things you've done in our church this year. But Lord, we also want to be honest and come and say we are not always where we need to be. We so quickly decide that we can do whatever we want to do. And then we pick the fruit for it. Lord, we want to come today and repent. We want to come today and to say, Lord, we want to change. We want to become people who please you. We want to become people who walk in your peace and experience all those beautiful benefits of what is available to us to have peace with God. Lord, do that work in us and enable us to respond in obedience. Respond in obedience. We pray all of this in your wonderful name. Amen. I hope you were blessed in hearing God's word today. For more information or prayer, please visit our website stillbaybaptist.co.za. May you find your life in Jesus Christ and Him alone.